Good morning, everybody. Thanks, class. That was wonderful. Uh, glad to be here today. My name's Rick. If you're new to Daybreak, one of the pastors, and glad that uh, you've chosen to be here and worship with us. We're at the end of this amazing series on grace. Uh, today, we're going to be tying that up. And Pastor Joel, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical right now. And this week, uh, we got some questions from some, from, uh, from some people who were saying, you know, is Pastor Joel okay? Was he falling apart? You know, was, no, this was a proactive move. Uh, we figured after 20 years of ministry uh, with no break that maybe it would be a good idea for him to have a little bit of a break, uh, for him to find some time to renew and take a summer that he can just focus on letting God speak to him, renew his heart and his passion and his calling for ministry. And so we wanted to be really intentional about that. So just want to remind you to pray for Pastor Joel this summer, and uh, maybe he'll come back and, and uh, we'll get to sit in the overflow of some of the things that God has uh, spoken to his heart uh, that could be beneficial to all of us in, in some way. Uh, today, as we wrap up this series, we, we've been focused on celebrating God's grace together. And we've been looking at a number of examples in Scripture that we can see evidence of, of grace. And grace is a term that isn't easy to define, primarily because it's pretty complex. And yet, at the same time, it's, it's pretty simple. And We've defined grace as being unmerited favor or undeserved favor from God. And so when you think of it that way, and then when we speak of, of, of God's grace towards us, we think about God extending grace to us, extending favor to us, when there is nothing that we could do to earn or deserve that favor. There is no possible way that we could uh, in any way merit or deserve or earn what God offers to us. But when I think about grace, honestly, the more I, I try to understand God's grace, I really think of it more in terms of an environment. And let me explain that to you. Let me give you an example. I have an older brother. Uh, he's 14 months older than I am. He's a pastor down in South Carolina, called to a tough place. He's in Hilton Head. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got to minister somewhere, I guess. But, uh, my older brother is a true people person. He just, he's one of those people who uh, people enjoy being around him. He's optimistic. He's fun. He's an encourager. And he's the type of person that after you spend any time with him, you feel that you have more value. You feel in some way like you're blessed in a unique way just because you spent some time with him. That's, uh, there's an environment that you experience when you're around him that just makes you glad that you were there, makes you glad that you were with him. And in a similar way, when I think about grace, I think of it in terms of the environment that is created simply because of who God is. And that when you're truly in his presence and you truly experience what it means to know God, have a relationship with him, what it means to, to receive his, his gift of grace, when you really find yourself in his presence, you can't help but be overwhelmed and celebrate this part of who God is. That he is a God who has a presence of grace. It's part of his very person. So over the past several weeks, we've taken this journey into Scripture to see the types of things that can happen when Jesus shows up or when God shows up with this environment of grace that he brings with him. And we looked at, at Jesus, uh, how he sacrificed himself on the cross for all of us uh, so that we could be rescued from our sins and restored into right relationship with God. There's an environment of grace there. We saw the environment of grace in the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And everyone else showed up to condemn her, but Jesus instead uh, was invited, invited her to have a fresh start and a new way of living, and he showed grace. We saw grace in our discussion about temptation 
and how that we're invited in the very moment of our temptation to approach the throne of God with confidence that we'll find mercy and grace there in the middle of our temptation, in the middle of our struggle, we'll find grace to help us in our time of need. And then last week we saw the environment of grace at work uh, when Jesus sat down to dinner with some of the people who were closest to him, his disciples, and he washed their feet, painting them a picture of what it looks like not only to accept God's grace, but to live it out and to extend God's grace to other people. Those are just some of the stories that we've looked at that have shown what it's like when you come into the presence of the God of grace. And today we're going to wrap up this series by looking at second chance grace. And we're going to wrap up with a story that outside of Jesus' death and resurrection is probably the most well-known, the most popular story um, in the Bible. We, uh, a couple years ago after Easter, we spent a, a few weeks in a series looking just at this particular story in scripture. And it's the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. But today we're going to look at it through uh, some different lenses that I hope will give you maybe a very, very clear picture and give us a good wrap-up of what God's grace can look like for us no matter where we are today. Would you bow your heads with me and let's just invite God to speak to each one of us in these next moments. Father God, we join together this morning from the chaos and the routine of our busy lives. And we want to take a moment of pause just to celebrate your grace in our lives this morning. So we invite you to use this story today that, to encourage us and to challenge us just like it did to the people who first heard it 2,000 years ago. We ask that you'd soften our hearts, that we could learn from you, and that each one of us would experience your grace in new ways today through this old story. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you haven't taken the outline out of your program uh, guide, you can do that and follow along. If you want to open your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time in Luke chapter 15 today. Uh, You can also, the scriptures are, are in your outline for you as well if you would like to follow along. But if you open up your outline, let's get started right inside. It says, I embrace God's second chance grace when I, number one, return to my father. I embrace God's second chance grace when I return to my father. It's important as we look at this story that we understand the context that Jesus was telling this story, and I wanted to give you a little bit of that background. Jesus told a number of stories uh, throughout scripture, and perhaps um, like this one, uh, some people might think, well, Jesus told stories because they were good to attract a crowd, Um, and other people might think, well, Jesus was a good storyteller, so he, he used it. And though both of those things are true, Jesus primarily told stories, parables, for one reason. And that's that Jesus told stories to a particular group of people at a particular time in order for them to really fully understand and embrace a specific truth that he had for them in that moment. These just aren't random stories that Jesus told just because they're good stories. There's particular stories to a particular audience at a certain time so that they can fully get their arms around what it is that Jesus wanted them to know so that they would have, be able to walk away from that moment and be without excuse as far as it related to hearing uh, God's truth for them in that moment. So in this situation that uh, Jesus was about to tell this story today, just to give you, paint the background for you, Jesus was hanging out with some of the least religious people of that time. Uh, Jesus was hanging out with a group of people that they just referred to as tax collectors and sinners. So the least favorite uh, profession of the time in the eyes of the public was to be a tax collector. They were crooked, evil, wicked people. And then sinners is just the uh, group 
that everybody else gets lumped into. So tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst in that moment. Uh, But they were gathering, the Bible says, tax collectors and sinners were gathering because they wanted to hear what it was that Jesus had to say. The Bible goes on to say that there were another group of people here there uh, who were there, and that were the religious folks, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we see that what they're doing is they're muttering uh, their disapproval of the people that Jesus had chosen uh, to speak to that day or had allowed to gather around him in that moment. So Jesus is sitting there with both groups of people listening in. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law. And it's to these very different audiences that Jesus chooses to tell three different stories to. The first one that he tells is a story about a lost sheep. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one of them. And he leaves the 99 in order to pursue the one missing sheep. And when he finds that one missing sheep, he throws a party. The second story that Jesus tells is about a lost coin. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She turns the house upside down in order to be able to find the one that was lost. And uh, then she throws a party once she finds it. And after each of these first two stories, Jesus points out again to both of these groups of people that are listening that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents or who turns from their own ways back to God's way or to God's way than over 99 who don't need to repent. So finding what was lost, Jesus says, is cause for the, most, for the greatest celebration in heaven. I say that again. Finding what was lost, according to these first two stories that Jesus told, is reason for the greatest celebration in heaven. So then Jesus, he tells the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then he busts out this third story. And this third story is one about a father and his two sons. And it's right in your outline. And I invite you to follow along with me either in your Bible or in your outline as I read this story. Uh, You can read along with me this morning. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the part of the story that most people think about when they think about the parable parable of the prodigal son. And the reason it's always been so popular, I believe, is that there's a part of each and every one of us that loves and longs for the grace that we see coming out in this story. 
in every one of us, we love a story like this because we long to be extended that same grace and we long to see it extended and to see this, this family and this relationship put right again. And we have this father who asks, we have this son who asks his father for his inheritance early, which would have been a tremendous insult in that culture, you know, and the more I think about it, what culture would that not be a tremendous insult in? Like, hey, dad, I want half of what you earned. I'm leaving you now. So I don't want any more relationship with you. I just want what I believe is coming to me. So I'm ending our relationship to walk away from you and demanding that you give me part of what is yours. A tremendous insult. He takes his share, he heads out to a far-off land, and he spends it recklessly on, on all sorts of things. And after it's gone, the Bible says there's a famine that hits the land, and he's desperate, so he ends up feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that he wants what the pigs are eating. And then it says this phrase, and I love this phrase in this story that Jesus is telling. It says, when he came to his senses, and this is really the turning point in the life of the son in the story that Jesus is telling. When he came to his senses, he decided to head back home and to work for the father, not as a son. He says, if the father would just accept me as a hired servant. And he rehearses all the things that he's going to say to his father. And I think probably as he's on the journey home, he's continuing to rehearse all the things that he's going to say when he sees his dad face to face. But his father sees him even when he's far away. And he's filled with compassion. And he runs to him and he hugs him. And the son, having prepared this speech, apologizes, starts to confess his failures. And almost like he's in the middle of his rehearsed speech, the father says, enough. And he tells the servant, go, go get all the party supplies. Go get him clothes and food and the ring and whatever, uh, shoes, whatever it is that he needs. He says, we're going to celebrate in this moment. My son was dead and now he's alive. My son was lost and now he's found. That's all that matters. It's a beautiful picture of grace. And the reason Jesus told it then, and I think the reason why we love to hear it now, is that at the end of the day, this is one of the biggest questions that you and I and every other person on this planet has. And that's, could God love me? Am I really acceptable to God? I mean, in spite of all the ways I try to clean myself up and all the things I try to do that are good, could I be acceptable to to God even through all the things I've done and the ways I've blown it and I fall so short of a perfect holy God who created me and loves me and has a plan for my life? Am I doomed to a life of failure, a life away from him or can I return to him and can I be loved by him? You know, someone taught me this when... um, they have kids that are a little older than mine. And when the, I was at their house one time when their kids were young, and I watched the dad speaking with one of his sons. And, you know, you pick up parenting tips wherever you can. So since that moment, I've done this with my kids probably hundreds of times. But sit down with them, you know, when they're expecting the, uh, the punishment or, or the big lecture. And in that moment, when God gives you a breath, and you can just have a moment of grace, and you look them in the eye, and I say, Does daddy love you when you do good things? Does daddy love you when you obey your mom? Does daddy love you when you don't obey your mom? And they start to go like this, and I go, yes, I do love you when you don't obey your mom. I want you to learn to obey your mom, but I still love you. And we go down through the whole list of negative things and positive things, and you affirm, dad loves you no matter what. I love you no matter what but I want you to learn how to obey as a response to my love for you. 
I want you to understand that there's a way that's right and a way that's better. And Jesus says, yes, that's the type of God that we serve. That's the type of God that God is. That's the environment of grace that exists in his presence. His love for us is not based on our behavior. It's not conditional. His love for us is unconditional. And not only can we come to our senses and return to him, but when we do, he welcomes us with open arms, he throws a party for us, and he invites us into his presence to feel more loved than we ever have been before. And many of us in this room have had moments in our lives when we've those come to our senses moment in our life. Maybe you're here and you remember it. How many of you remember a come to your senses moment in life when you turned away from your way and back to God's way, or you turned to God's way? How many of you remember? Yeah, we can remember those moments. There's many, many different ways that we get there. We repent, and the Bible says repentance is turning from our way to God's way. Maybe you repented at some point in your life because you were at the end of yourself, and you're desperate to survive, just like the prodigal in this story. You knew if you didn't repent, you were not going to make it. You were at the end of yourself. Or maybe uh, you were suffering from relational brokenness in your marriage or or your family was breaking apart and you knew in that moment that without God, you were not going to survive and you needed God in that moment. So you repented and turned from your way to his way. Or maybe you were wrestling with some of life's big questions and the meaning of life and you needed to repent. Maybe life just didn't work out the way that you thought and you were suffering from disappointment or discouragement and it drove you to your knees to stop pursuing your way and to start pursuing God's way. Maybe life did turn out the way that you hoped, but when you got there, it wasn't all that in a bag of chips. It wasn't what you thought it was going to be. You weren't as fulfilled as you dreamed you would be when you got to that place you had always dreamed of. And so maybe it was that moment that drove you to repentance. But there are countless things that have caused people to come to their senses. The beautiful truth is this, that when we do, we return to the Father And he runs to us with open arms and he welcomes us into his family. And then he celebrates. He doesn't pull out the long list of our sins and failures. He doesn't point a finger of of accusation at us. He celebrates. And that's who God is. That's the environment of grace that exists in the presence of our God. Philip Yancey wrote a book. It's entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? And it's a great book if you've never read it. But in the book, he tells the story of the prodigal son, but he wrote it as a modern-day parable. And as Cheryl reads it for us this morning, I want to invite you to allow God to speak to you about his amazing grace. And I have to tell you, Cheryl read this in the first service, and her pages stuck together, and she skipped the whole middle of the story. And she felt very badly, but she then recognized this whole morning is about grace. So uh, whether Cheryl reads the whole story to us or part of it, I want you to show grace, and let's say thanks to Cheryl for serving us today, huh? A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old, tend to overact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. When her father knocks on the door of her room after an argument, she screams, I hate you! That night, she acts out on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times, and she runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, She concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. 
California maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial. It's hard to believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once. Her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I ever leave? Pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls. Three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time, she says... Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? 
Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them more time to overcome her sh the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard sign posts the mileage to Traverse City. God help me. When the bus finally tolls into the station, air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters, and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Lord, I was just processing that applauding is an appropriate response to your grace. So thank you. And I believe today, Father, that there are some of us who are here who, even in this quiet moment, are coming to our senses. Um, and we know, God, that we need to return to you. So any of us who are in that place today, where it's our moment to come to our senses and repent, we just pray a prayer like this. Father God, I realize that I'm in need of second chance grace. Today I am coming to my senses and I'm repenting and I'm turning from my way to your way. Thank you for welcoming me home. Thank you for throwing your arms around me and for celebrating me with a party. 
We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a second part to the story of the prodigal son. And um, it's uh, there at the top of your outline. I embrace God's second chance grace when I celebrate the return of others. When I celebrate the return of others. So as the story of the prodigal has been told, many people leave out the second part of the story. And I think that that's sad because many people know the first part, but they're not as familiar with the second part. And there are two brothers in this story. Now, I want you to remember that earlier uh, we talked about the two different groups of people that Jesus was addressing on this day. And who were they? They were the tax collectors and sinners, and they were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's important to understand that as we enter into Act 2 of the story. So we're told at the beginning of the story that the father had two sons. We just heard about the younger son. And now Jesus introduces his listeners to the older son. Jesus says this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So Jesus says that there's another older son and the one who had never asked the father for his inheritance, the one who had never squandered uh, his, uh, everything he had on, on wild living, the one who had stayed at home the whole time working and serving and being faithful. And he's unaware, Jesus says, that the younger brother uh, has even returned because he's out in the field and, and he's out there uh, busting his tail for the family business like he's done for years, every day. So he comes home and he hears something unexpected at the end of the workday. He hears music and dancing. And he asks his servant about it and he finds out that his little brother's returned and that the father is so happy to see him that it, the father throws a giant party. The older brother isn't happy about it. He gets upset and basically he says, why should he get a party? I'm not going to go in and celebrate. I will not join any party that is being thrown for a runaway, for this deviant brother of mine, for this sinner. Somehow the father found out that the older son was not wanting to come into the party. And so what does the father do? The Bible says, Jesus says, that he went out and he pleaded with him. And it's interesting to me to think about the fact that both with the older son and with the younger son, it was the father who took the initiative to run out to each son. It's the father who took the initiative to engage in the relationship. So while the father was pleading with him to celebrate, the older brother explains himself, and he says it this way, I've been doing so much for you for such a long time, and you've not thrown a party for me. But when your son who's betrayed you, the one who misbehaves and squanders all of what you've worked hard for, returns, you throw him a party. Now, if you're like me this morning, and you're someone who has been in church for a long time, and if you're someone who has been genuinely trying to honor God with your life for a long time, and if you're someone who really strives to obey God and do the right thing, 
then I think there might be more that you and I can learn about the grace of God this morning than maybe even the younger brothers who are here. See, because the temptation for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time is that uh, we've been out serving in the fields. We've been out like the older brother. We start to develop some attitudes um, that we see in the older brother, which is particularly why Jesus was choosing this story to challenge the Pharisees who were listening there that day. So what are some of the attitudes that we develop when we're like the older brother in this story and we've served God for a long time and tried to be faithful with our lives? Well, one thing that happens is that I believe we start to to actually believe that we're more deserving of God's grace than maybe other people. We really start to think about the fact that I've put in a lot of time I've sacrificed a lot. I must deserve it more. But we said earlier that God's grace by its very nature is something that's undeserved. It's something that's unmerited. It simply exists because it's part of who our God is. So does God want us to do the right things in life? Does he want us to serve others and to obey him and to stay on track and be faithful? Absolutely. Absolutely. He created us to love him and he created us to give our lives to others. But God wants us to do those things because of the grace that we've already received, not as some sort of attempt to earn it. God wants our lives to be lived as responses to the grace and to the love that he's demonstrated and shown to us. But the older brother doesn't understand this at all. He's offended by this grace. And you might want to write this down. God's grace is often most offensive to those who think they actually deserve it. God's grace is often most offensive to people who think that they actually deserve it. And we've looked at this through a number of scripture passages in this series, and you can see it at many other places in the Bible. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how offensive God's grace can be to people who see themselves like an older brother. In the story that we looked at earlier in this series, there was a woman caught in adultery, and everybody showed up that day, all of the people who had done the right things with the intent to take her life and end her life. And they were so angry when they had to walk away and Jesus showed up and offered grace in that moment. They were so angry in that moment. You remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. God sent him to Nineveh with one message. And the message was, tell the people they need to repent. They need to turn from their ways and they need to turn to my ways. Jonah didn't want to do it. And when Jonah finally got there and gave the message and the people actually repented, The whole rest of the story of Jonah, the whole rest of the book of Jonah is about how angry Jonah was with God that the people actually repented. He was so mad that God showed grace to the people of Nineveh. That's not what he wanted at all. There's another parable, another story that Jesus told. It's about the kingdom of God, and it's about a man who owns a farm, and that he, uh, Jesus tells this story that he hires workers early in the day to go out and work this farm for him. And then as the day progresses, he continues to hire people uh, later in the day and later in the day to come and be a part of working the farm. And at the end of the day, Jesus says that the boss comes in and he pays everybody the same thing. The ones who started at the beginning of the day and the ones who started right at the end of the day. Now, Jesus doesn't say that this is a good business strategy, but he does say that this is what God's grace is like. This is what God's kingdom is like. Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, which we looked at together a few years ago, 
Uh, He had a quote in that book, and it said this, If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your your savior. You are serving as your own savior. There's nothing wrong with us working hard to obey God, to live a lifestyle of obedience. That's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The problem comes in when we forget that our obedience is designed to be a response to God's love and to his grace, not a way to buy it. Loving God and others is something that we're freed to do when we respond to God's grace in our own lives. So in the older brother mindset in this story, one thing that happens is that we start to think that we're more deserving of God's grace. But then a second thing happens after that, and that's that we start to separate ourselves or distance ourselves relationally from those that we think aren't deserving of God's grace. And sometimes we can do this as the body of Christ. We can become a church that separates itself from the world, not in the way that God intended us to be, but we separate ourselves because we see ourselves as more deserving or more righteous And we start to lose heart for people who we see as less deserving. People who we see as haven't earned it. People who we see that might not deserve it. And this is what the Pharisees were doing with the tax collectors and the sinners in their community. They had gotten so caught up in trying to deserve God's favor that they were failing to love others in the way that God was calling them to do. So in this parable, we see the older brother And he's doing the same thing as well. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. You never even gave me a goat to to celebrate with my friends. And then my younger brother, who squandered everything, comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. And he's so angry at his father's actions that he actually refuses to admit that he has any sort of relationship with his own brother, (laughs) which I think is kind of funny. And he refers to him as this son of yours. Now, Some of you probably understand this because when I come home at the end of the day, I can gauge how upset my wife is with my children by whether she calls them by the names that we gave them together or by her simply referring to them as my children. So things come out like, you're not going to believe what your son just did, you know? That helps me know where she is, how upset she is. Because the funny thing is, in my mind, I think, I really thought they were our kids. Like, everything to this point has led me to believe that those were our children. But that's when I know she's angry. It's when she doesn't even want to admit that she has a relationship with these children that are in our home. But I want you to look at the father's response now because this this tells us a lot. The father brings it back around when he says, my son, he's addressing his relationship with his older son. You are always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. Why? Because this brother of yours, whether you want to admit it or not, this brother of yours was dead. And now he's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. You know, when we have an older brother mentality and we begin to think we deserve grace, it can lead us to cut off the relationships with the very people that God loves and the very people that God calls us to love as well. As we start to wrap up this morning, I want you to think about this question. As we look at this, this uh, story that Jesus tells in Scripture, who is the party for? I mean, there's a party being thrown here, but who is the party really for? Because sometimes I think the anger and the bitterness of the older brother really center around his anger that he just sees the party as being for his younger brother who didn't earn a party. 
But I want you to think about that for just a minute and, and process that because it's clear that the party was thrown in, the younger bro- in honor of the younger brother's return. But what was the father's intention? He clearly wanted both his sons to be at the party. The party was for them. The party was to celebrate. So the party is actually for all of us who have received the Father's grace. God doesn't just celebrate the moment someone returns and receives grace. God's got enough grace and love to celebrate all of us in our return to him. Jesus said that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And this is what I want want you to understand this morning. Whether we like it or not, our God is a God of second chance grace. Whether you and I feel like that's not fair, that's not right, they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it, no matter what things go on in the back of our minds, we think, I've worked so hard for this God, why can't you bless me more than someone else? We look at the thief who hung on the cross beside Jesus, and we look at Jesus in the last moments extending grace to him, and there's part of that that's beautiful, and there's part of that that's confusing for us. Why would he do that? He didn't earn that. He doesn't deserve that. I don't know if you've ever been by someone's deathbed when literally in the last moments of their life, they make a confession to God and they repent. I've been there when that's happened and there's a beautiful part of it and there's also a very sad part of that because you're thinking of all the relational damage that they did in their lifetime and all the ways that they hurt people and all the missed opportunities and relationships and now at the last moment, they're asking for grace. And yet God extends it. Everything we see in Scripture would be crazy for us to believe that he wouldn't. Everything in Scripture tells us that he's a God of second chance grace. But yet at the same time, we go back to that story of the workers in the field and we think, God, that's not right. That's not right. They didn't do anything right. And you extend grace to them. God says, you didn't earn it or deserve it either. You just came across it earlier than they did. And I extended it freely to you. Is it possible that God thinks so differently than we do about the volume of grace and love that he has and that he has a freedom as God to give it out however he chooses? Our God is a rescuer and he's a partier. He rescues people and he invites us all to be a part of the party. Always. He wants us to celebrate the things that he celebrates, to be the type of people who celebrate God's grace when others repent and when others receive the gift of grace. You know, as kids, we can hardly wait for Christmas morning. Do you remember those days? I mean, seriously, I want you to think about this for a minute. When you're a kid, you start getting pumped about Christmas in September when they start playing Christmas music, right? Like... The music, and you're already thinking about, Christmas in some ways for a kid is just like vacation is for an adult. You have more fun actually thinking about the vacation than you actually ever do going on the vacation. So the three months of planning it is way better than the actual execution of the vacation. Uh, You create fantasies in your mind of how wonderful the vacation is going to be as a grown-up. That's pulling back the curtain a little bit for you kids who are here. Uh, We need that as grown-ups, so just let us have those, those moments. But we get so excited about Christmas for months in advance. And why? What's the bottom line? Why are we so excited about Christmas? We're excited because we're thinking about what we're going to get. We're a kid. 
we're already dreaming about what's going to be under that tree months in advance and, and opening it and the excitement that we're going to experience once we get those gifts. However, as we mature and we get a little bit older, something begins to change in us, and it should begin to change in us. As we grow and we mature, Christmas morning takes on a new meaning. It's still exciting, and it's still a celebration, and if you're a Christ follower, it's still a very important day in your life, and it still has deep meaning. But our excitement now transitions to celebrating the experience of those to whom we are giving gifts. We've been receiving gifts for years, but the people who we're giving gifts to, especially some of them as kids, they've just started to get them. They're still excited about receiving the gift. It's still a new gift to them. Our excitement shifts from ourselves to other people. And we find our joy in watching other people receive gifts. And if I'm in my 30s or 40s and beyond, and my main excitement about Christmas celebration is still what's in it for me, then I've got some maturity issues that I, that I probably need to deal with. In a similar way, as you and I mature in our relationship with God, he invites us to keep noticing and appreciating and celebrating the gifts that he gives us. But he invites us to make the transition to become people who get most excited and find the most joy in seeing others receive gifts from God, in seeing others get welcomed home into God's grace. And I want to challenge you with this this morning. If the goal of spiritual maturity is how much of the Bible that you know how many religious practices or experiences you've been involved with, how many Bible studies you've attended on every book of the Bible possible. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you think that that's spiritual maturity, if Jesus thought that that was spiritual maturity, I think he would have told a very different set of stories that day. I think he would have told the story of an older brother who needs to be celebrated for his lifelong faithfulness, consistency, toil in the field, and proud attitude about that. I think he would have told a story about a younger brother who maybe if he gets accepted back at all, gets accepted back as a servant because that's what he deserves for what he did. I think he would have told a story, he would have pointed to the Pharisees there in that moment of that day, and he would have said, Look at these men. They're living life the way I want you to. They're focused on themselves, all about their religious piety and their good deeds. Live like them. Follow them. And he would have pointed a finger at those who were tax collectors and sinners. And in that moment, he would have said, you are out of line. You, you guys are not welcome in God's kingdom. If anything, you might be able to earn some kind of favor by staying on the outside and working as hard as you can to deserve it in some way. Jesus would have said, 99 sheep are enough. Let the other one go. Nine coins are good. Don't worry about the tenth. Those are not the stories that he told that day to those two groups of people. And I just want to ask you, is it possible that our thinking about grace, is it possible that our thinking about the way that God sees us and the way that he sees others is so skewed with our own humanity that we just don't get it at all? We miss out on one of God's best gifts to us, his grace. We miss out on celebrating what God celebrates. That's his best gift to the world, his life-changing grace. 
You know, that's the kind of church that we want to be. Not the kind of church that just celebrates the 99 who are in and ignores those who aren't. We want to be the kind of church that joins the party that God is throwing every day in heaven as new people discover and experience his grace and they begin a life-changing journey with him. I want you to flip over to the vision statement on the back of your outline. This is our church vision statement. It says, helping people discover a life-changing journey with Jesus. And what's the first thing? Celebrating God's grace. That's what we want to be about. When we come together as a church family, whether that's here or in small groups, we want to help people. We want to celebrate the grace of God in our own lives, and we want to bring the grace of God to wherever we are. We want to be people who embody God's grace and take it with us wherever we go so that people can see that grace is transformational in a person's life. And when we go throughout our weeks, and as we spend time in the presence of God, we want to celebrate his grace so we have a clear perspective on the life that God has called us to live. You know, we don't know how the story ends. Jesus doesn't tell us whether the older brother chooses to join the party or not. We don't know. We do know what the Pharisees decided. They decided that they would continue to focus on their own righteousness, and they totally missed the heart of God for people. We know that. Scripture tells us they didn't repent of all of their spiritual arrogance. They just went on, focused on themselves and their own piety, and they missed the heart of God for the people who were all around them. God says that every person who receives grace, every changed life is worth us celebrating. And God today is inviting you and I to consistently be a part of the party that he is throwing to celebrate his grace, to learn how to celebrate his grace every day, both in our own lives and in the lives of others who desperately need it. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to say thank you for second second chance grace. Thank you, God, for second chance grace in my life. Father, for those of us who are like the older brother, would you help us to celebrate the return of others? Would you remind us of your grace in our lives, of your unmerited favor to us? We want to celebrate life change in others and not just be so focused on ourselves and our own righteousness that we miss joining you in your mission of grace. Father, for those of us who are like the prodigal, we want to say thank you for second chance grace for us. We've come to our senses and we're returning to you today. Thank you for loving us and for running to us with open arms. We repent and we turn away from our way to your way today. Father, would you help us to be people who are so close to your heart that we bring your environment of grace with us everywhere. You're a God of second chance grace. And we love you, Father. Amen.